Russia's war on Ukraine has led to thousands of civilian deaths, thousands more Russian and Ukrainian soldiers' deaths, and millions of refugees and internally displaced persons. But this is only the beginning of the human toll of the Ukraine war. A number of commentators have observed that perhaps the most important humanitarian consequence of the war may have to do with its effect on the availability and price of food around the globe. What will the war's effect on the global food supply look like? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Catherine Bertini, longtime executive director of the UN World Food Program from 1992 to 2002. Thereafter, she served as the UN Undersecretary for Management from 2003 to 2005, and she is the 2003 World Food Prize Laureate. Currently, she's a distinguished fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the chair of the board of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, uh, the acronym for which is GAIN, and the chair of the executive board of the Crop Trust. Thank you so much for being with us today, Catherine Bertini. You're most welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you. So as I noted in the introduction, beyond the deaths of combatants and civilians and the creation of these massive flows of uh, displaced persons, the war in Ukraine is likely to have major effects on the world food supply. But before we get into the, you know, the current uh, situation, perhaps you could start by giving us some background on the world's food situation before the Ukraine war erupted. Sure. Thank you. We often say that there's enough food in the world to feed everyone. It's just the distribution that is off. Why? Because the hungriest, poorest people cannot afford to grow or purchase their own food, or it's too far away from them, the markets, or or, uh, they don't have the ability in order to access the food. In, well, what we might say is normal times, I'm not sure there's, there's any such thing anymore, uh, there are about 800 million people who are desperately poor, not sure where they're, not sure where their next meal is going to come from, or or how the next day will provide for food for their family. So that is mostly people who are desperately hungry. However, some of that number are people who are living amidst war and natural disaster, and of course that number will have gone up with the, the war in Ukraine. So, uh, I mean, these commentators who, you know, talk about the consequences of the war on the global food situation note that Russia and Ukraine have contributed in enormous proportions of some of the aspects uh, of that global food supply, in particular grains like wheat and corn. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what are the consequences of this, you know, uh, inevitable disruption in uh, food production and supply coming out of these two huge countries? I mean, Russia, after all, has whatever it is, nine time zones. I mean, it's an enormous place. Uh, but Ukraine has historically been the breadbasket of the region. 
So, but the fact is it's a breadbasket for the world as a whole. So what are the consequences of this war on the global food supply? There are huge consequences of the war. We are seeing them already in terms of prices of food. If anybody listening has been to a grocery store lately, you'll find much of the food is has a much more inflated price than did even a week ago and certainly a month ago. Food prices were going up because of fuel prices before the war. Not going up to be unaffordable for most, but certainly it's starting to be unaffordable for many in this country, people who are who are poor and who are struggling to make ends meet and to find enough food to buy enough food to feed their families. So they've already seen a crunch. We've all seen a crunch. Now though, the prices are going up much higher and they will all around the world. Why? In large part because of the of the grains and the fertilizer ingredients that are produced and exported by Ukraine and Russia. Together, they export about 35% of the world's wheat. They, they export much of the world's maize or corn. Uh, they have a, more than 50% of the world's oil, seed oil, and vegetable oil used, by, used in cooking around the world. Uh, and between those two countries and Belarus, who are also implicated in this war, um, most of the ingredients that go into fertilizers are produced in this region. And that means that fertilize, fertilizer is less available, which means it's higher priced. And this is true for farmers buying fertilizer, whether they're in the U.S. or Ethiopia. In addition to that, there are many countries that are very reliant on the purchases from these countries themselves. So in other words, on one hand, prices are going to go up worldwide because of a decrease of availability. On the other hand, some countries just won't get the grain because they rely on Ukraine and, and Russia for the grain and or Belarus for fertilizer. Right. I gather Egypt is the leading importer of wheat. Uh, and so a country like Egypt is especially vulnerable. You know, I mean, there are differential consequences of these of these factors on different populations. I mean, for the United States, it's, you know, it can be an issue, certainly for people who are less well off. But generally speaking, we're probably not looking at, you know, starvation, an increase in starvation. Uh, but around the world, I mean, it seems to me that we're we may well be looking at that kind of situation. I mean, for people who, you know, barely can make ends meet, don't know where their next meal is coming from, uh, you know, a small, what to us would be a small increase in the price of cooking oil, let's say, uh, can have, you know, major in, impact on whether or not they can put food on the table. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that sort of, you know, differential effects of this, uh, of these impacts of the war? Certainly. We see in some countries who have a high reliance on Russian wheat or Ukrainian wheat, uh, countries like Lebanon and Egypt would be very high on that list. Uh, we will see a stark problem very soon. Not necessarily yet, because uh, uh, the um, the export some of the exports will be still. In, for instance, in the sea on the way to those countries, but soon, because Russia has stopped its exports altogether, and uh, Ukraine is um, still trying to get food out of the ports, uh, harvesting. However, 
what will the next harvest be like? We have no clue. We don't know how, what this harvest will be like because um, a lot of the farmland is, has been under um, Russian uh, occupation or invasion. And uh, many of the farmers have not been able to go to the fields. So then when once they do, they have to ship their grain to a port and the port has to be functioning. So there, there's a lot of ifs even right now to get that food out. So for countries that are relying on, on those countries' wheat products, there are going to be huge issues. Now, first of all, Lebanon and Egypt are examples of countries where wheat-based products, bread in particular, are hugely important, big part of the diet and part of the culture. So not being able to have them is uh, more of a crisis added to the fact that there just won't be enough food. What we saw the last time this happened on a major scale in 2008 to 2011 was a lot of um, violence especially started by young men in the cities who could did not have access to bread or only at high very high prices and one of the ingredients of the so-called arab spring was the lack of bread and or bread available only at very high prices and of course one of the inputs into that was when russia decided not to export and they were a big uh, exporter to egypt so we can expect, based on history, that some of that history will repeat itself. And I think that uh, those countries and others have to pre-plan as much as they can in order to try to, for instance, put in substitutes for wheat to be able to help sustain the populations. So now we've sort of gotten into the politics of food, and I think that's a really important question, certainly, that I want to ask, which is, um, you know, the UN Security Council exists. It's meant to regulate, uh, you know, conflicts around the world. Vladimir, uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky gave a speech there the other day uh, demanding more assistance against the Russians, but it basically, you know, was... Uh, it was a performative kind of thing uh, because Russia sits on has has a veto in, in the Security Council, and so any proposal it doesn't like, it simply can veto. So the question is, uh, you know, are there institutions around the world that can do anything about, uh, you know, addressing this kind of uh, situation, and how cooperative are they? The answer is yes, absolutely, because the Security Council would be needed in order to end the war. It would be nice if it could be used for that purpose, but that's currently out of the question because of the Russian veto power. But it has really nothing to do with humanitarian programming around the world. So humanitarians can go anywhere where they're invited in order to help. They can go into Ukraine or any countries around Ukraine. They can go into the, any countries in the bordering the Mediterranean or anywhere else where they're invited and they're in many of these countries already in order to help with food security issues or other related issues. So so that isn't a problem to find people that know what they're doing to help. It will be a problem to be funded because they would have to convince the major governments, the major donors of the world who are governments, to contribute to these efforts. But that probably won't be a problem either because the U.S. and Europe, Japan, Australia, they don't want to see crises in the streets, violence in the streets in any of these countries to further destabilize countries that are already, in some cases, already weak. Right. So 
you know, one of the things that we're also talking about with regard to energy is, uh, you know, strategic reserves that the United States, for example, has on hand. And those can be, you know, introduced into the supply when there are shortages coming out of conflict uh, zones and that sort of thing. Are there similar kinds of backup plans, so to speak, uh, with regard to food? Is there something that one can invoke in this sort of situation? Many countries have food reserves, and uh, a lot of countries in Africa started to put these together after the famine in 1984. I, you remember years ago, I mean, those of us old enough can remember years ago, the picture of the starving Ethiopian children. And uh, our, one of the outcomes of that was the creation of national food reserves in many countries. So the status of the volume of what's available in those countries, I do not know, but they do exist and um, they would be potentially be able to be used. Ethiopia, for instance, allows donors to borrow from that if they've pledged to replace it. So if uh, the U.S. said we are going to provide 100,000 tons of, of wheat to Ethiopia uh, and, and makes that pledge formal, then Ethiopia would actually open its, its coffers and use that 100,000 and then replace it when the U.S. grain arrives. So another point that you've gotten into in a previous answer that I wanted to follow up on is um, the, the matter of um, shipping. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention given to the fact that there have been all kinds of bottlenecks in global shipping, and that's uh, created bottlenecks in terms of you know availability of various kinds of goods. Uh, and this has to do with uh, you know simply ports that are overwhelmed, and basically it, it's about the return of the economies in the post-pandemic, insofar as we're in a kind of post-pandemic period. Can that be addressed? Is that being addressed? Is the shipping situation one that contributes significantly to this food problem? Shipping does, and the backups in ports, which are getting better, I understand, in the U.S. anyway, uh, are um, important for all of our export exports and imports, uh, and certainly it's important worldwide. There's another issue that the U.S. has that's been problematic for a long time, and that is something called cargo preference. Any aid that is shipped from the U.S. proper has to have a certain percentage of it shipped on U.S. flagships, uh, and um, they're more expensive than ships flagged in other places. Now, the U.S. shipping industry will argue that that's because they're better. We pay our staff better. We pay union wages. We the ships are in better shape, and that we need them for potential use for military purposes as backup to the military. Well, the latter argument, as far as I'm concerned, is moot because we've been fighting wars now for some decades post-World War II, and we've never, ever used these commercial U.S. ships for that purpose. But that's what they argue, and that's why the the percentage is in there. But it, it also cuts down on the options and, and raises the cost for shipping American food overseas. So perhaps another question uh, that arises is, um, you know, what, what role does the private sector play in all of this? I mean, they can't necessarily create food out of nothing, obviously, but they must be a, an important partner in addressing a crisis like this. Private sector is critical. First of all, farmers are private sector, right? So 
So if we think about farmers and what they could do, I talked to a reporter in, in Chicago recently who had been talking to Midwest farmers about what they were doing and, and people who were, who were now starting to grow wheat uh, either were either shifting into wheat because of the higher prices of wheat uh, or expanding on uh, their wheat production because they were trying to find every, I don't know what the agriculture word is, for every nook and cranny of land possible in order to grow as much wheat as possible to get that into the market. So one thing farmers can do worldwide is to maximize uh, growing, especially of the of, uh, grains and um, and seeds for oil. But then also, we need to be looking on a large scale at what other kinds of products could replace wheat if, in fact, there's not enough wheat in the market or, or again, the price is so high that people throughout the world cannot afford it. Cassava, for instance, which is a a plant grown in Africa, uh, um, can be used can be milled and, and essentially used to make bread. Many other products like that, that can be used to make bread. They're not necessarily uh, widespread, but part of an, a humanitarian or an aid program by a government, for instance, could be to help teach people how to use cassava or other uh, other uh, plants to be able to make bread when you're out of your normal ingredients. So uh, I, there's a lot of different pieces that could go into that. Um, and one of the crops that's not yet affected and hope, hopefully will not be is rice. And certainly there are a lot of different um, recipes that can be made from, from rice, some of which could be used to help uh, uh, in the shortfall of wheat and corn. Right, right. So... Uh, you're an expert on this and I'm not. And, uh, you know, the question that occurs to me is, you know, what vulnerabilities of the food supply system, you know, uh, am I not thinking about that's weighing sort of heavily on your mind? I mean, what have I sort of not asked that, you know, I obviously should be asking about? Well, you asked a lot of good questions, John, but uh, uh, let's start with trade. It's really important to keep trade flowing. And to avoid the the natural reaction to hoard. Now, countries hoard and, and people hoard. So countries may say, "Oh, this is going to be such a crisis. We don't want to we don't want to ship any of our grains out of the country because we're going to need them here." And once one country does that, there's a ripple effect because the whole system that works now is going to be undercut by all of a sudden losing that piece of it that comes from that country. So in fact, it'll backfire on that country, even though it might sound good. And this might be where politics comes in. You know, well, says the leader, I'm going to keep all the food for our country and not share it with anyone else because we need it. But that may absolutely, usually is absolutely the wrong thing to do because it'll disrupt the rest of the market and it'll come back and slap in the face over the long term. Um, so, and there are, last I looked, seven or eight countries that have some sort of a restriction, not necessarily a total ban, except for Russia. Of course, then Russia would have to deal with whether or not people would buy their buy their uh, outputs anyway. But certainly, some countries still would. But but they have they have banned exports for now. So so watch exports and help support continuing the. Uh, Export import system that we have around the world. That's number one. But then think about it from a personal perspective too. Hoarding your 
personally, it's, it's also a bad idea for the same reason. I mean, I remember when rice was in very, very high demand and short supply in this country. And I had people, men usually, weren't, in, in these, these cases, weren't even the cooks in the house. They would go to, you know, the uh, st- store and buy these big bags of rice to bring home and, and put in their basement, just in case. Well, what does that do to, to, to the woman who actually feeds her family every day on rice? And um, she can't get any because this other guy is never going to use it bought it just in case. So, um, so we have to, we have to be careful of those, those tendencies ourselves too. So trade uh, and, and kind of hoarding is not such a nice word, but it's the best one I can use, I guess, in this case are um, important to, um, to be careful about. Um, Then I think the other thing is that we all can be more creative about the foods that we use for, for what we're making. And you know, as soon as anybody goes to the grocery store and finds uh, finds how expensive prices are rising, uh, I think they'll be looking for alternatives. And and we should, and we should be looking for creative alternatives. And we should be provided those by the nutrition community. Right. Well, I'm eating a lot more grapefruits these days. I don't know if that's <laughs> they seem to be showing up in Costco in large numbers. So I, <laughs> and I like them. I remember that I like them. Um, <laughs> But so as somebody who also tends to think about things, you know, comparatively in terms of history, um, you know, is there any experience of this kind that is kind of comparable or that you think about when you think about what's going on today? I mean, given the centrality of Ukraine and Russia, at least to the grain supply in the world, I mean, I wonder whether there's been this kind of disruption or this kind of risk uh, since the Second World War but you would know more about it certainly than I do. Yes, there was, there were twice as far as I understand it. Um, well, the aftermath of the war, of course, took a while before, uh, before countries were able to um, become as self-sufficient as some are. And then Ukraine wasn't even a country, um, but it was the breadbasket, as you said, still. Um, in the 70s, there was a crisis as well as in one starting in 2008, both of them started with increasing fuel costs. Uh, and um, so that ties into agriculture, it ties into shipping, it ties into being able to run your, your tractors and your combines and uh, be able to get your goods to the port, um, ship the goods. Uh, and then also, it, it, as those prices increase, the price of fertilizer increases. So the price of the basic farming increases. And, uh, and in the seventies, then, and in, in 2008 through 11, we had these kind of crises. So, um, I mean, I guess I'm trying to think now sort of about the likely outcomes here, you know, let's assume what I guess I'm increasingly assuming a kind of, you know, not very, good case scenario where this all drags on for a while uh, and, um, you know, Ukraine is not able to get back to its, you know, usual level of production, certainly for the next year, let's say, um, you know, what happens then? Uh, who, who replaces that? I mean, you, you talked about farmers in the Midwest and the U.S., you know, getting into the wheat business because the prices are appealing and that sort of thing. I mean, can the market respond that quickly? 
there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a more than a year, probably a couple of years of high prices and and lower availability and um, and how much longer it goes, and that depends a lot on how much longer the war goes on. Uh, and but even if the war stopped, hopefully, would it be wonderful if the war stopped tomorrow? Um, it, there's a big impact on this on on this harvest on the next harvest already. So um, we are we are looking at a um, at least a, I think at least a couple of years of issue. What happens in that space? Yes, there. there I believe that there's enough um, wheat still on the market, for instance, to be able to sustain in most places. However, it's going to cost a lot of money. Rice can pick up a lot of the um, um, slack, I guess, for lack of a better word, if if the rice market is not impeded. Uh, And it's not threatened by the, the Ukraine war. Um, but it could be by who knows something else. As I said, these are almost like dominoes in terms of how countries react and what that does to the trading. So, um, so it'll come down to the, the people who are living on margins. There'll be more people living on, on margins because prices are going up and they have less availability for food. So we really have to think seriously about social safety nets and, um, and be sure that they're strong enough in the next couple of years in, in the U.S. and throughout the world uh, to be able to help sustain um, people and to help avoid what we saw in, in the last crisis with violence um, in in some countries. Sure. Well, maybe one last question, which gets back to some of the first things you said, uh, that in normal times, we have this kind of notion that um, there's enough food in the world, it's just a question of whether or not people can afford to buy it or get access to it uh, in terms of actual, you know, physically getting a hold of it. it. You know, let's in the hopeful scenario, uh, hope that that comes back, that normal more or less normal situation returns. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things that's happened over the last couple of dec- few decades is uh, that the global population has grown wealthier and the number of people, uh, you know, the extremely poor uh, have declined in number. Uh, and this is one of the reasons we switched from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals, right? That, that that goal of reducing the number of desperately poor people was achieved, you know, ahead of schedule. And so, uh, so the question is, you know, to what extent is that, you know, in fact the case and to what extent are the numbers of people who face food insecurity uh, in a normal kind of world, uh, how much is that declining or is that going to have reversed course because of the uh, consequences of the war? I mean, how do you see that playing out? Um, We're going to, we're going to have more people in need for a while. So um, let's, we're going to have people displaced from, from the war. Um, and we're going to have this 800 million plus number of desperately hungry people. That number has gone up recently because of COVID in addition to the other issues. So, so the combination of that plus what, what's coming in terms of prices will probably increase that number. And we will have to find a lot of different creative ways to help those people to be able to build their own livelihoods so that they don't have to live on a day-to-day basis without knowing where their next meal is coming. Well, 
a sobering analysis of the situation. But uh, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Catherine Bertini of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs for sharing her insights about developments in the global food situation as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. I especially want to thank my colleague Ellen Chesler for helping make this interview possible. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. 